Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about melanoma research with Dr. Jeffrey Ishizuka. Dr. Ishizuka is an assistant professor of medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Jeff, maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. So I'm a physician scientist, and that kind of means that I spend part of my time treating cancer patients and part of my time in the lab looking for new treatments for those patients. And so tell us a little bit more about the kinds of patients that you treat and the kinds of research that you do. Yeah, so I see melanoma patients, and I'm an immunologist by training, and that means I study ways to find the uh, I study ways to make the patient's immune system work better to attack the cancer. So tell us more about that. I mean, we've talked on this show a little bit about immunotherapies and so on, but tell us a little bit more about kind of the broad spectrum of immunotherapies, how exactly it works, and then the role that it plays in melanoma. Yeah. So there are a couple of types of immunotherapy. And really, for a long time, we knew that the immune system had the potential to control cancer. But I'd say the two big advances that are more recent are, on the one hand, CAR T cells. And those are kind of cells that are taken out of a patient's body and reprogrammed to go back in and attack the tumor. And immune checkpoint blockade. And these are drugs that cut the brakes on the immune system. Those brakes kind of stop the immune system from attacking the cancer. And when you get rid of them, the cancer, can, uh, the cancer is vulnerable to immune attack. And so tell us more. Tell us about, you know, which of these you work on, how exactly they work in melanoma. Yeah. So in melanoma, immune checkpoint blockade has really been uh, one of the biggest developments that's happened really in the last, uh, well, maybe ever in the disease. It's it's up there, certainly. And uh, I think melanoma was the first disease these drugs were developed for and uh, remains one of the ones where they work the best. So tell us more. Uh, I mean, you talk about this immune checkpoint blockade. Is there more than one molecule that needs to be blocked? How does that work? Why does the immune system have breaks to begin with? Yeah, these are great questions. And uh, they're really at the forefront of the field right now. So there are certainly at least a few molecules that are important. And all of the ones we learned about uh, first are on the surface of T cells, which we know are one of the important cells for controlling the uh, for controlling cancer. Um, there are a number of molecules that target PD-1. That's a major kind of inhibitory pathway in the T cells. And also molecules that target CTLA-4, which is, is another inhibitory pathway in T cells. And what we learned is when you block either one of these, and sometimes if you block them both together, it works even better, uh, the T cells can get supercharged to to attack the cancer. So why is it that they have breaks to begin with? I mean, the immune system is supposed to be able to identify foreign stuff in our bodies and get rid of it. So why is it that that doesn't work in cancer? Why is it that we need um, to take off these breaks? Why do they have breaks to begin with? 
Yeah, and, and this is sort of the foundational question of immunology is the distinction between self and non-self. So, you know, all cells need to be able to get rid of foreign things, just as you said, but at the same time, they need to have mechanisms to, uh, to avoid attacking the normal cells in the body that are healthy. And so, so why is it that the immune system thinks that these cancer cells are normal cells? Uh, yeah, so I think it's really because cancer cells arise from normal cells. As normal cells uh, become dysregulated, as they acquire genetic errors called mutations, um, you get uh, you eventually develop cancer. And because the cancer cell arises from a backdrop of normal cells doing normal cell things, uh, the immune system look, has to find specific signals of, of damage or of mutations that look abnormal in order to recognize cancer. And so you're telling me that normally it won't do that. Well, it's one of the it's one of the problems. Actually, is uh, some people's tumors are recognized by the immune system, and the immune system can actually get rid of them, and, and other people's aren't. And and really, what we're trying to understand, and at the heart of the field, is how can we take tumors that are not well recognized by the immune system and turn them into tumors that the immune system can see and destroy. And so, it seems to me that if you take that problem just at its face that there are two ways of doing that. One is to make the tumor look more abnormal so that the immune system goes, aha, this is actually foreign, I need to attack it and get rid of it, without actually revving up or, or the immune system or, or taking, getting rid of the breaks. And the other is to supercharge the immune system, as you put it, to make it more sensitive to recognizing what might be abnormal. Yeah, that's right. And I think people are, are working at both sides of, the, of that problem. Um, we and others in the lab kind of are, are thinking of strategies both to, to make tumors uh, put out kind of signs for the immune system, come get me signs, uh, and also looking for new ways to, to charge the immune system uh, to be more aggressive against cancer. So tell us more about the first because I think that, you know, we've heard a little bit about and we'll get more into it about checkpoint inhibitors, but we really haven't heard a lot about the work that's going on to uh, have tumor cells put out those signs that say, come get me. And it seems to me that, you know, that might be a way to allow the immune system without getting, quote, supercharged um, to eat up or get rid of uh, these cancer cells. Because one of the, the problems, as, as you point out, of having a supercharged immune system is that it can then attack its own cells. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the, so the strategies that, that we've been thinking of and, and others as well, uh, there are a number, but a lot of them come down to tricking the tumor cell into making inflammatory signals, uh, tricking it into making kind of an antiviral response that recruits uh, anti-tumor immune cells into the microenvironment. And, and I think there are you can go about that by infecting the tumor with a virus or making it think it's infected with a virus uh, or triggering certain danger signals in the microenvironment directly around the tumor. And so t tell us more about that work. I mean, is that actually something that's being done? Is that close to getting into clinical practice? Is it in clinical practice? Um, how, how do we do that? Yeah. There are a number of clinical trials now using um, stimulators of uh, viral pathways that look like DNA or RNA, things that viruses make and that our cells have dedicated sensors in order to detect. Um, and I think none of them has proven to be the, so the, the magic bullet for cancer yet, uh, but there are uh, still some technical hurdles to work out, and I think we're, we're getting there, though. 
So, so why has that not proven to be as successful as supercharging the immune system? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that cancer in many cases uh, can spread to many locations. And when you think about triggering an inflammatory response, um, in the tumor bed, you're really thinking about triggering it not just at one site, but at many sites all at once. And so finding ways to send drugs to all of the different sites that cancer occupies in the body is, is one of the major challenges to getting this approach to work. Okay. So the other approach then is the one that um, really is kind of at the mainstay of of immunotherapy, which is to, quote, supercharge the immune system, to get rid of the blocks. Uh, I always think of it like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak, right? The tumor has kind of made itself invisible to the immune system, and it's kind of getting rid of that that cloak and, and getting the immune system to recognize it and to go after it and to, uh, to be, quote, supercharged. Now, you mentioned two molecules in particular, CTLA-4 and pd one. Um, tell us a little bit about the the differences between the two. I mean, we have drugs that will block either pathway. Um, how, how do you figure out which one to use? Uh, tell us more about that interplay. Yeah. So I think we still don't fully understand the mechanism of either drug and either pathway. We know a lot about them and people have, have done a lot of good work. In fact, and the Nobel Prize was was awarded a few years back uh, for some of that work. But uh, I wouldn't say that we completely understand uh, which even sometimes which cells are being targeted, but certainly which which pathways within the cell are being activated. So a lot of how we figured this out has been empirically. Um, we've done clinical trials with different drugs or different combinations of drugs, and we've seen what's been effective for patients. And the hope is going forward that as we learn more about the immune system and as we learn more about the tumor, that we'll be able to do better than that and, and even predict, you know, the next uh, set of these drugs that could be usefully combined. So... Tell us more about the differences between CTLA-4 and PDL one I, I mean, I get the fact that we've discovered these kind of fortuitously and empirically and have just kind of made drugs that affect each of these pathways and seen that they work. Um, but we must know more about these actual molecules. Yeah, so... I, they both play an inhibitory role in T-cells. I think it's broadly thought that... Uh, that one of them plays more of a role in T cells initially getting primed against the tumor. Maybe, it, unclear, but maybe plays more of a role in lymph nodes and in generating the T cells that are capable of responding. Whereas another one, uh, the other one, that's PD-1, may play more of a role in activating the T cells that are already primed against the tumor, that already have the capacity to attack the tumor. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm kind of steering clear of the term of exhaustion because there are a lot of debates about whether T cells uh, are actually exhausted or not. But there's this idea that, that they can, uh, that T cells can, after seeing a lot of tumor antigen, stop responding very well, that they can become dysfunctional. And so one of the things that PD-1 blockade does, PD-L1 or PD-1, it's both sides of the, the same pathway, um, is to make the uh, T cells that have become dysfunctional more functional. And so 
if these two pathways then are complementary, one being more so for priming T cells and one being more so for T cells that are already primed, has there been any work looking into either concurrent therapy or sequential therapy of different immunotherapies that might work better than either in isolation? There has. In, in melanoma, combining two drugs, one that targets CTLA-4 and one that targets PD-1, seems to be better than using either drug alone and potentially better than using them both in sequence, although the latter is a less clear conclusion. And so, so how much has immunotherapy really found its way into clinical practice? Yeah. So one of the exciting things in this field has been seeing the slew of approvals for immunotherapies in different cancer types. Uh, in melanoma, certainly it's become standard of care in the front line uh, for most patients, and it's being explored in basically every stage of care uh, of the disease other than for disease that can just be removed and surgically cut out in the early stages. And, and really, beyond melanoma, it's spread throughout um, many, many solid tumor types and, and into uh, almost uh, – it's being tried in almost any tumor type you can think of. And so two questions. First question is one of the things you mentioned earlier as being one of the uh, downfalls of some therapies is that it, it can't always get to all of the cells where the tumors may be hiding. Does immunotherapy have that problem in terms of getting to the T cells um, and, and activating them or supercharging them? Or is that concept of, you know, this may not work uh, if there's a tumor, for example, in the brain because this drug can't cross the blood-brain barrier? Or does it affect T cells wherever they are? So we know that we can get effects certainly in the brain. Um, and so you can see effects of these drugs in what are thought of usually as, as sites of the body that are hard to get to or immune privilege sites. Um, but I guess what I, I don't know for sure, it's hard to say, is whether there is a problem activating immune cells somewhere in the body. That is to say whether we're getting these drugs as effectively as possible to all the immune cells that might be able to be mobilized against the tumor. Okay. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about melanoma and immunotherapy right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about this research with my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Ishizuka. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Ishizuka. We're talking about melanoma research, and in particular, we're talking about immunotherapy. So, Jeff, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about immunotherapy in terms of, you know, really getting the immune system to attack uh, cancer cells, which it may not recognize because, you know, as you put it, these cancer cells come from normal cells and that may not be as foreign looking to the immune system to really trigger it. And we talked a little bit about two separate pathways, CTLA-4 and PDL one and the fact that we now have drugs, this explosion of drugs in immunotherapy uh, targeting these two pathways and how this really has become the mainstay of therapy, particularly for cancers like melanoma. So I had a few questions to kind of follow up on that. The first is, tell us a little bit about the side effects. Um, you know, we think about chemotherapy and you know, traditionally chemotherapy was um, therapy that kills off cancer cells and was really thought to be a therapy that switches off rapidly dividing cells. And so people ended up losing hair and maybe getting sick because it affects your GI lining, which are rapidly turning over cells. Do you get the same kind of thing in immunotherapy or are there other side effects that are the result of you know, kind of supercharging this immune system and getting the immune system to attack healthy cells. So I think that's it exactly. Many of the side effects that you get from immunotherapy are actually side effects of supercharging the immune system. So the immune system can accidentally uh, attack different areas of the body. Some of the things we see are inflammation in the lungs, inflammation in the GI system. We see inflammation of the endocrine system. And when we first started seeing these side effects, there wasn't a good sense of, of how you treat them, how you manage them, or even how you monitor. We didn't really know what to look for. Um, but I will say that as experience with these agents has progressed, we've gotten better at detecting these side effects as they occur and managing them, usually using immunosuppressives. And you know, one of the questions that comes up when you start saying, well, you're using drugs to charge the immune system and at the same time to shut down the immune system. Is, is that going to be is that going to be bad for the patients? Are they going to have bad outcomes? And the data isn't really completely mature on this yet, but it certainly appears from the early data that you can safely give these immunosuppressives and that you don't, at least don't clearly make the responses against the cancer worse. That's really interesting. Why would that be the case? I mean, I can, I can imagine... That, you know, when we think about people who are immunosuppressed, uh, people who, for example, have HIV or other things that kind of turn off their immune system, they are more at risk of developing cancer. And I guess for the same reason that you talked about before the break, which is your immune system, unbeknownst to you, might be getting rid of little cancers that you don't know you have because it recognizes them and it gets rid of them. And so if you are immunocompromised, um, you're at increased risk of getting cancer. So, and that's the whole point of, I suppose, uh, supercharging the immune system now is to kind of get rid of these cancers. So why is it that giving people an immunosuppressant at the same time as uh, an immunosupercharger um, doesn't, doesn't seem to affect the cancer yeah. in a bad way? Yeah. So a couple of 
potential thoughts here. The first one is that I, I want to be careful. We don't know for sure that it doesn't affect the, the response to therapy in a negative way. Uh, I think what we can say is that at first blush, patients who needed immunosuppressives because they had these bad immune effects and then got them didn't do obviously worse, at least in the early studies, than patients who didn't need them in the first place. And that actually could be a kind of selection bias issue where the patients who needed the immunosuppressives actually were having the strongest immune responses to begin with. Uh, and so I think we'd have to do some careful experiments in a controlled setting to see whether it was really true that the immunosuppressives weren't having any effect there. Um, and I think the I, I think that's probably the main thing that I would think about uh, for that issue. Yeah. The other question that I have is, you know, these um, autoimmune kind of side effects, the, the side effects of people's immune system now attacking their own normal cells, are those permanent? Are those are they forever or, or are they short-lived? Like, I mean, when you get chemotherapy and you lose your hair, we tell people, don't worry, your hair will grow back. Um, is, it, is it the same with immunotherapy that, you know, this is a short-term thing? Or when your immune system attacks your lungs, is that like, okay, you've got pulmonary fibrosis forever? So I think it depends on the, the type of immune side effect that we're talking about. I think many of them, if they're controlled with immunosuppressives and if you take the patient off of the immunotherapy, will actually go away. So we see this in a lot of cases, you know, inflammation in the colon or inflammation in the lungs can be that way. I think the case in which this isn't necessarily true is uh, when the immune system attacks a cell type, say, that produces hormones uh, in the body and destroys all of that cell type because in that case, you may not really know what's going on until the cell type is gone. And after that, there's really no bringing it back. That sounds bad. So in most cases, we actually have been able to give uh, hormone replacement. It's extremely bad if it's not detected, but in a lot of cases, uh, you know, it can be solved by giving a pill a day. So when you talk about hormones, are you talking about um – Thyroid? Are you talking about ovaries? Are you, what, what, what hormones are we talking about? Yeah, so thyroid is one that you certainly see. But um, you see actually a number of other hormones that are, are produced in the brain uh, that can also be altered. And, and these can be, be more rare but can be pretty dramatic if you see them. So given the side effects of immunotherapy, um, is immunotherapy really better than classic chemotherapy? I mean, what did you had mentioned that immunotherapy has now become standard of care for melanoma? Um, is it better than what we used to do? Like, what did we used to do? We used to give chemotherapy for melanoma, right? Yeah. So we we did, and melanoma is not particularly responsive to chemotherapy. And uh, I think what excited everyone in the field and has given us all a lot of excitement and a lot of hope is. Um, is not even that everyone responds to these immunotherapies because they don't. Not enough patients do. And that's something we don't really understand. We're trying to, to understand it in the lab. Um, but it's that some of the patients who respond seem to just keep responding. And some of them respond so well and for so long that we've actually started to believe that we can take the patients off of the drugs, the immunotherapy drugs, uh, and that the cancer won't return. 
And this is true even in some cases for very aggressive or um, very aggressive disease. Uh, and so seeing those effects are the ones that have really made everybody excited. And you see that bear out in clinical trials when we study how patients do, how patients survive on different drugs. Uh, in melanoma, it was no contest between the immunotherapies and chemotherapy. You know, when we talk about therapy for cancer, a lot of times we're talking about personalized medicine. We're talking about how we can figure out what a cancer likes to eat, what a cancer, uh, what receptors a cancer has, what genes are turned on and turned off. And then we target our therapy accordingly. Um, when we talk about immunotherapy, it seems to me like we're talking about a blanket turning on, supercharging the immune system writ large. Is that right? Or are there ways where we're actually tailoring this therapy? Are, are we looking at who are those people who are super responsive to immunotherapy versus the people who are not super responsive to immunotherapy? And which immunotherapy might work better in particular patients? Yeah. So this question is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, we, in general, don't do a great job of selecting patients to get particular immunotherapies. There is one biomarker, which is the expression of PDL1 um, in the tumor. Uh, so we talked about PDL1 and PD1 as one of these key pathways. Uh, so if you have PDL1 expressed in the tumor microenvironment, either by immune cells in the microenvironment or by the tumor, we know that you are more likely to have a response to targeting the PD1, PDL1 axis. But basically everyone in the field spends a lot of time complaining about this biomarker because we know there are a lot of patients who will have PDL1 expression in their tumor who won't respond well to these drugs. Hmm. And conversely, there are a lot of patients who won't have uh, PDL1 expression in the tumor who will still respond to these drugs. So what's the point of the biomarker then? <laughs> well, we know it's better than not using it uh, in terms of you have some predictive value. And in some cases, um, you might not even be able to see a signal of the drug working in a patient population unless you used a biomarker. Uh, and also, it's a stand-in because we haven't done a good enough job yet of finding better ones. So... So tell us more. I mean, so so we have this biomarker that if you have it, you won't necessarily respond to the immunotherapy. If you don't have it, uh, you may still respond to the therapy. So either way, you're likely going to get immunotherapy if you have melanoma, regardless of whether you have the biomarker or not. That's true. And that's where I think uh, we have the potential to do much better, uh, particularly as you know, we talked about these two pathways. Well, there are a lot of other immunoregulatory pathways that can um, activate immune cells or can, you know, activate the tumor to recruit immune cells. Uh, and, and we're still at the beginning of understanding these. But uh, as these drugs come out and as they're available, we have the potential to start thinking about, okay, for a given patient, how can we assess that patient's immune system? And how can we understand uh, the, the tumor? the genomics, the genetics of the tumor in such a way that we can find the best combination of drugs to work for that patient. So, so tell us more. That sounds really interesting because that sounds like the stuff that we've been doing for a while now in terms of cancer and looking at cancers and figuring out which therapy is going to work better, what target 
pathways are turned on versus turned off? Should you be using, you know, an anti-HER2 agent in somebody who's got a HER2 positive breast cancer? Or should you be targeting KRASC in lung cancer? It sounds like you're moving in the same direction in melanoma, but looking at it from an immune perspective. Yeah, and it's still, I should say, and this is mostly on the research side right now. We're trying to understand the flavors of inflammation in the tumor microenvironment, kind of the composition of the immune cells that are there and why they're there. And then once, we, as we understand that, we're simultaneously starting to look at, okay, if we take pieces of the tumor and study them in, in tissue culture, if we study them in a dish and treat them with different immunotherapy drugs, can we see patterns of response from some patients but not from others? Those are things that, that we're working on here and others are working on as well that we think could lead to the development of better biomarkers. That's one kind of major approach. Another one is focusing on the technologies that have have emerged to sequence patient genomes and to sequence the immune cells from patient genomes. Um, we do technologies now to look at individual cells and sequence everything that that cell is uh, is expressing, basically everything it's doing. And we can do that for, for a bunch of cells in the microenvironment all at once. And the thought is that we may find uh, particular genetic lesions in the tumor that lead to a better response to immunotherapy A versus B, we may find particular features of the immune system that interact with the tumor as well that predict that. And so I, I think that in the next five or 10 years, we're likely to see progress in this direction, whether that will translate effectively into guiding you know, precise therapy choice for patients in melanoma, I'm not sure. So tell us more about that, because it sounds like, you know, when you talk about we can essentially take tumors and look at the microenvironment and see the composition of these cancer cells uh, and what kinds of immune therapy they may benefit from. And you can also look at the immune system and see, well, maybe my immune system is different from your immune system in terms of attacking a particular cell. Is that kind of on the right track? It's exactly on the right track. And, you know... Even taking a step back, when we first started to see that these therapies could work for patients, uh, people started to ask, okay, why, does, why do they work for some patients but not for others? And we started to look inside of patient tumors. And one of the things that was, was clear is that some patients have a lot of attacking immune cells even prior to immunotherapy, uh, and others don't. And just unpacking that basic, uh, that basic observation is something we're, we're still doing. But, you know, as I was mentioning, as we start to understand it, as we start to understand the chemical signals that the tumor and the immune system makes, um, it's giving us uh, a lot of inputs to try to determine which drugs could be effective in each case and what the basic flavors of immune microenvironment are. Dr. Jeffrey Ishizuka is an assistant professor of medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.